In the announcement about the conference at North Stonington, the speaker and topic was left out. The speaker is Ron Merriman. Many of you have heard Ron over there before. I encourage you to go. He's going to be speaking on Romans 9, 10, and 11, which is a crucial subject today because that deals with God's plan for Israel and, and the justification of, uh, or the righteousness of God in relationship to the nation Israel. We live in a time today when there is a tremendous rise in anti-Semitism, and the new anti-Semitism is being cloaked in the form of anti-Zionism. And so you won't have, or you don't necessarily have the kind of uh, racist anti-Semitism that you had with Nazi Germany, but it's a much more subtle and a more, and in many ways, a more dangerous form today. Plus, there is, of course, the same old virulent form that exists in uh, and among Arabs and is and Muslims and Islamic countries. In fact, as I understand, understand it, the uh, one of the top ten best-selling books in Islamic countries is Mein Kampf, written by Hitler, which explained all of his anti-Semitic rantings and ravings, and then. Also, a fraudulent document that came out in the late 19th century, I believe, called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which claimed to present a conspiracy theory, of the, uh, a Jewish conspiracy theory to take over control of the world, and has always and often been used over the last 150 years or so to justify uh, persecution of Jews. So we live in a time when it's important to understand that what the Bible teaches about God's plan and purposes for Israel and just because Israel or the Jews are no longer at the front of God's plan as it were, they have not been the church has not permanently replaced Israel in their place in the covenants of God and the, and God's eternal plan. So that will be a very important study in Romans uh, 9, 10, and 11, not only because of the emphasis on Israel, but other facets uh, dealing with some other important doctrines in that section. Before we begin our study this morning, let's uh, open in a word of prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you an opportunity to uh, use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, uh, simply to identify any sins to God. Uh, means that at that instant we're forgiven, cleansed of our sins, restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so we can uh, resume our spiritual growth. It is important to be in fellowship for prayer to be uh, valid. Uh, the psalmist said, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And the emphasis is that the believer, while his sins are paid for at the cross, and while he has eternal salvation and cannot lose salvation, sin does cause a breach in our fellowship with God, and that is recovered simply through admitting or acknowledging our sin to him. It's on the basis of grace. It's already paid for by Christ on the cross, so we don't need to add anything to that. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this privilege and opportunity to gather together this morning to study your word. We thank you again that we live in a nation where we have the freedom to gather together, that this freedom has been purchased for us on the field of battle through military victory, that we may not forget those who have served our nation, those who have given their lives, that we might live in freedom and, Father, we pray that as each generation faces the test of whether they will uh, continue that legacy, we pray that this generation might stand strong. We continue to pray for our, our nation's leaders, for our president, for those in civil uh, leadership as well as in uh, 
military leadership that you would guide and direct them in their decision making that you would continue to protect uh, this nation give us provide for our freedoms provide for our security father we continue to pray that the truth would continue to be taught in this nation that there would be uh, men who would uh, be worthy of the challenge to be go through the training the study the preparation to be a pastor to be willing to take on their upon their shoulders the the mantle of, of the teaching ministry of your word, that uh, people in the congregations can grow and mature in their spiritual life. As goes the believer, so goes the nation. Father, we do pray that as we continue our study this morning, we would be challenged by the things that we study, that we would have a desire to apply these things to our life, that our thinking might reflect your thinking, and that your, your word would be real in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me again to 1 Corinthians 15, 23 to 28. But before we get started, I do have a picture from last week of uh, Dan graduating from seminary. Turns out all the pictures that were taken inside were too dark and did not really come out, so we just only the outside uh, pictures came out. And he will be here uh, later in the summer, so you all can congratulate him at that time. I want to turn back to a passage we studied last week, and I want to go through it again in a little more detail from a little different perspective and answer a couple of questions that were brought up at the end of class last time and try to clarify some things in this passage. There are some sections, especially the last couple of verses where we have all those uh, he's and him's, that get a little confusing. But before we get to that again, I want to take time to look at the first part of this section and the first verse once again in verse 23. Now, we have to remember that this section from 20 to 28 is a reiteration of the basic principle that Christ has risen from the dead. In the previous section, Paul was taking the other side. For the sake of argument, he was assuming the conclusion that was presented by the uh, some in the Corinthian congregation that there really wasn't such a thing as resurrection from the dead, that is, physical, bodily resurrection. They weren't questioning an afterlife, but they were questioning the necessity of physical, bodily resurrection because in Greek thought, as I've said many times, that was not important, that was not a facet. In fact, they looked on that as something that was rather negative. But starting in verse 20, Paul reverses the argument and he begins with the principle, but now Christ is risen from the dead. Literally, Christ has been raised from the dead and continues to be raised from the dead. It's a perfect tense verb of the verb egyro, perfect tense emphasizing the present and in this case ongoing results of a completed past action. So this is his starting point. This is his premise. And what he develops from this is that not only does Christ rise from the dead, but as the first fruits, that is a guarantee of coming harvest. That was the emphasis in the Jewish feast, the first fruits, that the initial offering was a guarantee of coming harvest. It was a security bond that there would be more harvest in the future. So what Paul is developing here for the believer is the confidence that the most feared thing in a person's life, which is physical death, the termination of life, is not to be feared at all because death has been completely conquered and the inevitable consequence of Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. That's his argument, that the inevitable consequence of Christ's physical bodily resurrection is our physical bodily resurrection. And therefore, if we can, this is the argument through the rest of the chapter, therefore, if Christ was raised from the dead and that problem was solved in terms of that negative consequence of sin, then all other problems in our life can be resolved through the grace of God. He establishes the principle in verses 21 to 22, that because uh, in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now that has in view 
specifically the fact that every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in the church age shall be made alive. Now, that is not going to exclude believers from other, uh, other dispensations in history. But in verse 22, it is clear that what Paul is speaking of there is those who are in Christ as opposed to those who are in Adam. Now, that does not include... Well, the term in Christ does not include Old Testament believers, and it will not include tribulation saints. They are not in Christ. That is a technical term for our positional reality today for church-age believers. But that doesn't exclude other believers from resurrection. He is simply making a point. He is applying it to the present church age. And then he says in verse 23... But each one in his own order. And we studied that last time, and we saw that that refers to the, that uses the Greek word tagma. And this has to do with a group. It's frequently used to establish or to refer to a military organization or a segment of a military organization. So in this case, we'll use the concept of a battalion. And there are two resurrections spoken of in Scripture. His subject here is only the first resurrection, and that first resurrection has six stages. The first is Jesus Christ in AD 33. He's the first fruits. The second stage is church-age believers at the rapture. Data unknown. That's yet future. So all we have at this point is the guarantee of our future resurrection, that death will be conquered, physical bodily death will be conquered, at our at, at the future resurrection. But that's not the end of it. There will be a resurrection of the two tribulation witnesses halfway through the tribulation. These are two prophets that appear on the scene halfway through the tribulation who become the specific targets of the hatred of the Antichrist. And he has them uh, executed halfway through the tribulation. And after three days, they are raised from the dead and taken bodily into heaven, and everyone sees that take place on, on the earth. Then there are the tribulation martyrs. These are the believers who died during the tribulation, and they will receive a resurrection body at the end of the tribulation period. Then there are Old Testament saints. Old Testament saints don't receive their resurrection bodies at the rapture. They are not raised from the dead until the end of the tribulation. And that leaves only one group, our sixth group, which will be millennial saints. Now, there's a second resurrection at the end of the tribulation, and that's all unbelievers, so we're not concerned about that in our study. Millennial saints, the few believers, and I don't think there will be many, but there may be some, because we're living in, in the millennial kingdom in an age of perfect environment. Now, there are some that argue that that believers will not die during the tribulation, I mean during the millennial kingdom, but I am not, uh, I'm not convinced by the passages that are used to cite that. There, there's conceivable, uh, it's conceivable that there could be some that die, and this is a very rare, it's considered extraordinary for a believer to die during the millennial kingdom. And we are not specifically uh, told when they would receive their resurrection body either at the time of death or at the end of the millennium. But we're, these are the various stages of the resurrection that Paul is talking about in verse 23, each in his own order. So he is not simply talking about church-age believers, although that has been the subject in context. Each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that, that is sometime after that, and so far 1,900 years at least has gone by since uh, Christ's resurrection, almost, almost 2,000. And there has not been the second stage of the uh, rapture, I mean second stage of the resurrection. Then we come to that last phrase, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Now, it doesn't say those who are in Christ at his coming. If it stated those who are in Christ at his coming, 
then that would be a clear indication that this verse was talking about the rapture. See, the question that I was asked last time was that uh, had to do with identifying this coming, which is the Greek word parousia, which you see up on the screen, identifying this coming as the second coming, not the rapture. And that was a good question. I was, as I studied and went back and looked at this passage for a fourth or fifth time uh, this last week, I looked up on several of the key works done by dispensationalists on the rapture, and in almost every one that I checked where they had a study on the word parousia, they they all, at least all the ones that I checked, identified 1 Corinthians 15.23 as a rapture reference. But just because they identify it as a rapture reference doesn't make it so. We have to look at the context. And see, one of the problems that we run into is that many people have taken this word parousia as a as a technical term for the rapture, but that's not true. So this is what I want to focus on this morning, is what is parousia, to what does parousia refer? Each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterward those who are Christ at his coming, that is, at the parousia. Now, is this the rapture, or is this the second coming? So we have to go through a study. Now, this is something I don't do very Frequently, and that's to take you through what we call a word study. And this is what uh, any pastor should be doing as part of exegesis. Exegesis includes a number of, uh, of different things, one of which is to focus on, uh, first of all, you look at observation. You look at the text, what does it say? And in order to understand what the text says, you have to look at the grammar and the syntax of the passage but you also have to understand the words and how they are used. And not just how the word is used in Scripture, but how a word is used by a particular author. One author may use a word in a slightly different way than another author. So you have to compare how Paul uses a word with how John uses a word, with how Peter uses a word. There may be some various differences there. So you go through and you look at a word study, and the first stage in any word study is to Look at how the word is used, not to go to the dictionary. See, that's how most people will do it. And frankly, if you're teaching Sunday school or if you're uh, a non, an untrained pastor and you just have rudimentary study skills, probably the first step that you do is you pick up a Vines Expository Dictionary of Old and New Testament words off the shelf, or you, if you've got a computer program, you look at the dictionaries there. And that is usually the first place that people go to find the meaning of a word as they look at a dictionary. But see, a dictionary, and this is something you can file away and teach your kids, a dictionary is written by men, scholars, whether it's English dictionary, Greek dictionary, whatever, men, men, various scholars who have studied how a word is used. They have collected hundreds or thousands, in some cases tens of thousands, of examples of how a word is used. And they have studied all these various uh, uh, instances of word usage, and then they've summarized it into one, two, three, or in some cases 10 or 15 different uh, categories of meaning or nuances. So when you look at a dictionary, that information simply reflects the fact that that individual has gone through a certain uh, process of observation of word usage, and he has drawn certain conclusions and categorize that word into how it's used. And when a word is listed in a dictionary, the first meaning is the one that is the most common. The second meaning is the second most common. The third meaning is the third most common, and, uh, and so on. But if you are a trained exegete and you've gone through uh, something more than a first year or even second year of Greek or Hebrew then when you sit down to do a word study, the first thing that you should do is to look at every place that a word is used in Scripture and develop your own categories. And the last thing you do is you go to a a lexicon or dictionary to see how somebody else did it. 
Now, frankly, we, you don't always have the time. I'm working on a word study now on Angelos in Revelation to deal with some things, and there's a hundred, I think there's 167 uses of the word Angelos in the New Testament. And so in order to come to a better understanding of what the role and purpose and function of angels is, then you have to go through and study in context each and every use of that word. See, you thought this was an easy job. But that's what you do if you have time. And granted, you don't always have the time to do that kind of technical work. And as the, more, the longer you're in the pastorate, you build resources, you build files, and, and you continue to add to that. Sometimes you just have to take shortcuts on what other people uh, have done. But what we'll do this morning is we'll just look at a few of the ways in which uh, parousia is used. The first time the word is used in the New Testament, and frequently, I'm not going to say it's a, it's a, it's a permanent rule, but frequently what you will discover is that a word's meaning is defined or set by its, its first usage. First are the first two or three times a word is used in the Scripture. And this is an example of how that's not true. But that's generally true. To look at a word and see how it's used the first two or three times will often give you the parameters for that word. Well, the first time parousia appears in the New Testament is in Matthew 24, 3. This is the well-known Olivet Discourse. And we will come to know it very well as we go through our study on Revelation second hour because much of Revelation parallels what Jesus says in response to the question posed by the disciples in Matthew 24, verse 3. There we read, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of your coming and, and of the end of the age? They are not asking what will be the sign of your of the rapture, there are no signs for the rapture. If there were signs for the rapture, then there would be prophetic events that would have to be fulfilled before the rapture could take place. And we are to be looking for the glorious appearing of Christ, not for some other sign that would uh, presage the coming of Christ. So they are asking a, a two-pronged question. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? His coming is the end of the age. So in this case... Parousia refers to the second coming of Christ. The second coming is distinguished from the rapture in that at the rapture Jesus comes in the clouds for the saints, and at the second coming he comes to the earth with the saints. That's, that's the difference in a nutshell. So they are asking, what is the sign of your coming? This is a reference to the second advent when he returns to the earth to establish his kingdom. Matthew 24:27 uses the word again. Uh, Jesus is speaking here and he says, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, and see that has to do with, with quickness, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. It will be rapid when it happens. And again he uses the word parousia. So in Matthew 24, the word parousia refers to the second advent. Matthew 24:37 it's used a third time but as the days of Noah were so also will the coming that is the parousia of the son of man be so at that point we have Jesus coming and it's the second coming none of these references in Matthew 24:37 are to the rapture Matthew 24 doesn't refer to the signs of the rapture there are no signs of the times you will often hear that phrase used Matthew 24 talks about the signs for the second coming only. The rapture can come at any time. No sign takes place before the rapture. Matthew 24, 39 uh, is using, uh, it deals with that. another illustration. They did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming parousia of the Son of Man be. Again, second coming. Then the fourth usage in the New Testament used in Matthew, and the next time it's used is our passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 23. We'll come back to that. 1 Corinthians 16, 17, it's used again. This shows us the, uh, this is just a standard usage in everyday language, but this gives us an idea of the meaning of the word. Paul is relating it to the coming or the arrival 
of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. And these three had finally arrived. So here we see that it's not just about the coming, somebody coming and going, but it has to do with arrival. That's a major nuance in the word. I'm glad about the arrival and continued company of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. It's not just that they got there, but that they came and they stayed. It has to do with their presence, and it could be translated presence there. 2 Corinthians 7, 6, uh, it's the same idea. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming or the arrival of Titus. So see, the, the main idea in Parisia has to do with uh, com- arrival, or it can even mean the presence. 2 Corinthians 7, 7, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation which, which he comforted you. So again, it's the arrival and presence. 2 Corinthians 10.10, he uses it again in talking about criticism that that Paul received from some. And he says that uh, these opponents make the comment for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak. See, there we have the word used again, parousia, his presence is weak. So the main idea here that we see from these references is that the, the core meaning of the word has to do with arrival, someone coming to someone, but not just, not just that instant or moment of arrival, but the ongoing presence after that arrival. Philippians 1.26, Paul says that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Not just showing up, but spending some time with them, with, with the Philippian saints. So again, it has an idea of arrival and presence. Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my parousia only, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. See, the contrast is, between, is with that word absence. So there you have to have a word that uh, isn't just my coming. Coming isn't the opposite of absence. Presence is the opposite of absence. So it has that idea of ongoing presence. Then we get to 1 Thessalonians, which we all know is a passage, is an epistle that gives us uh, our key passage on the rapture in chapter 4. But in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul says, For what is our hope? or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? Now, in the English, we have two words there. We have the word presence, and we also have the word uh, coming. Now, the word presence is the Greek word parousia, and the word coming and first that's two nineteen is again the word parousia. So you have the word um, uh, excuse me, I, I just misidentified that. I put it in front of presence. The presence there is in then, which is before the Lord. Parousia is at his coming. So that's, that's just misidentified on the slide. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you before the Lord in then of our Lord Jesus or of our Lord Jesus Christ at his parousia, at his coming? Well, that would refer to the rapture in First Thessalonians 2.19 because this is talking about believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, church age believers, and their uh, presence at his coming. And that would be the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 3.13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. Now, 2.17 refers to the rapture. Notice, because that is when believers are gathered together with the Lord. But in 3.13, that's not the rapture. Because this is talking about the presence of the Lord 
when he comes with all his saints. At the rapture, he doesn't come with anyone. It's the second coming when he comes with the bride, with his bride, with the church. So here we have a clear reference to the second coming. Then in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 and following is the key passage on, on the rapture. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, we have the statement, uh, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. In verse 17, we have the Greek word harpazo. H-A-R-P-A-Z-O. Sometimes you will hear people say, well, the word rapture isn't used in the Bible as if that means it's not biblical. Actually, there's a, there is a fairly strong case for the use of the word rapture. Harpazo was translated by Jerome into the Latin Vulgate by the Latin word verb rapto, which is the root verb for, from which we get our English word rapture. So it is simply the Latin word as opposed to the Greek word which we use when we refer to the doctrine of the rapture. So we could refer to it by the Greek, the harpazo, but it makes more sense to use a commonly accepted term, the rapture. So in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, parousia refers to the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, again, is, a ra- is the rapture. 2 Thessalonians 2.1, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that's the rapture. Our coming is parousia. So once again, see what I'm showing you is that this word is a general word for coming. You have to look at the context to determine what the word means in each one of these verses. Second Thessalonians 2.8 uses the word parousia with reference to um, the Lord's return when he destroys the Antichrist. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And since we're in this verse, you might want to turn to that passage. Let's just take a little rabbit trail for the moment. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 8. Go back to verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This is a principle that is a general trend of the age. This is part of the cosmic system in which we live, the principle of lawlessness. This is under God's sovereign will or his permissive will, allowing sin and evil to work out its consequences in human history. So this mystery of lawlessness is already at work in the present church age. It's been going on through history. Only he who now restrains, verse 7 says, that is a reference to the Holy Spirit, that there is lawlessness, but there is a restraint on evil during this present church age. You think things are bad. We all face crises in life. We face suffering. We face disappointments. We face heartache. But things are not nearly as bad as they could be. There is restraint. The Holy Spirit is holding back Uh, evil and sin to some degree in this age. He who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So the restrainer is then removed. This occurs at the rapture. During the church age, every believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. 
There is a presence of God the Holy Spirit on the earth today. But that presence is removed. And then, verse 8, see we have this uh, temporal particle here. And then, after the removal of the restrainer, after the removal of the strainer, then the lawless one will be revealed. Now, I want you to notice that... um, that first the restrainer has to be removed before we're going to know who the lawless one is. And the lawless one here is the Antichrist. So when you have somebody write a book like we have locally, uh, some guy at a Christian bookstore down in uh, Groton has written a book claiming to show that Saddam Hussein is the Antichrist. That we know that that's not true. And this is the passage you go to to demonstrate that. The lawless one isn't removed until the restrainer is taken out of the way. The restrainer is taken out of the way at the rapture. So on the basis of this passage, we know that we we will never know who the Antichrist is as the Antichrist. You You might guess it, but you won't know if your guess is right until after the rapture. So the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. What's this? This is second coming. This is not the rapture. To one was the rapture. To eight, parousia refers to the second coming. See how the word shifts meaning even within the context of a passage. And then it's applied to the to the uh, coming of the Antichrist in verse 9. The coming, that is parousia, of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So there it's just using its everyday usage of arrival. James 5, 7 and 8, it's used twice. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. And here it would refer to the rapture, same as verse 8. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Here it refers to the rapture. Second Peter 1.16 For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. When does, what does that refer to? When was Peter an eyewitness of His majesty on the Mount, on the Mount of Transfiguration? So this is not a reference to either the second coming or the rapture. It is a reference to the first advent. It's a reference to the incarnation of Christ at the, at the first advent. So you see this word is a general word for coming or arrival or presence of someone. And when it refers to the coming or arrival or presence of Christ, you have to look at the context to determine its meaning. 2 Peter 3, 4, this is the statement made, not by Peter, but this is a statement made by those who have rejected uh, the truth of Scripture, the skeptics, and they say, where is the promise of His coming? So here it would not have a technical sense of, uh, or a theological sense because unbelievers don't have that, that technical understanding. They just know that Christians look forward to a return of Christ. So that's just a generic usage. 1 John 2, 28 And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And that refers to the rapture. Because at his coming, at the rapture, uh, for believers, we're taken to be face-to-face with the Lord in heaven. We have our resurrection body in the next stage for us, while the tribulation is going on on the earth, is that we are at the judgment seat of Christ, where we are being evaluated in terms of our spiritual growth, our spiritual life during, the, during our time on earth in preparation for our ruling and reigning responsibilities in heaven. So that leaves us with a conclusion that fits with the definition given in the Bauer-Danker. That's what BDAG stands for down at the bottom. That's the Bauer-Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich uh, Greek lexicon, the latest uh, edition that the word has two basic meanings. The first, it's the state of being present at a place. In other words, you would translate it with presence. And second, it would emphasize the arrival 
as the first stage in an ongoing presence coming or advent. So at neither time do you completely lose the idea of ongoing presence, but it may be emphasizing either the ongoing presence or it may be emphasizing the arrival and uh, the ongoing presence. So when we look at 1 Corinthians 15.23, let's turn back to verse 23. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who were Christ's at his coming. Now, as I pointed out, it, doesn't, it actually doesn't even say those who are Christ. What we have is an ellipsis where we have simply those of Christ. Those of Christ at his coming. And it is, a, it is not the statement those who are in Christ but those who are of Christ. That can include all believers of all generations because Christ died for everyone. He died for the sins of the Old Testament believer. He died for the sins of the tribulation believer. He died for the sins of the millennium saint who was born during the millennium. He's still born with a sin nature and with the imputation of Adam's original sin. So the phrase Christ or those who are of Christ is not a technical term or is not a term that necessarily restricts the meaning to believers or church-age believers only. Each one in his own order. Now, there are, as I've said, this, the tagma includes Old Testament saints as well as the tribulation saints and the two tribulation witnesses. So that's three of the six companies in the first resurrection battalion are all resurrected during or at the end of the tribulation. So this word could easily apply to not only uh, could easily apply to the second coming of Christ, but remember it has that idea of ongoing presence. What happens at the second coming? Christ arrives on the earth and he remains, his presence remains as the ruler, the king of the messianic kingdom. So that would also include millennial saints who are resurrected during the millennium, or even if it's at the end of the millennial kingdom, because the word uh, parousia would include the presence of Christ on the earth. So I think we can conclude from that word, that it's just a general term. It's not to be restricted to the rapture. And I think we have further support contextually in verse four, 24 when we read, then comes the end, then comes the telos. And the telos here is defined as when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Now there's another word. The end could be the end of what? The end of the tribulation, the end of the... Church age, Matthew 24, 6, when Jesus is answering the question of the disciples as to what are the signs of your coming going to be, Jesus says, you will be hearing wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Same word that we have in uh, Matthew, I mean, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. The end, but there in Matthew 24, 6, the end is referring to the end of the tribulation just before the arrival of Christ at the second coming. Whereas in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, we're talking about an end when he hands over the kingdom to God, to God, the God and Father. So that the Handing over the kingdom to the God and Father doesn't take place until the end of the millennial reign. It doesn't take place at the beginning. It doesn't take place at the second coming. It takes place when, at the end of verse 24, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. And we looked at that last time and saw that those terms, authority and power, all refer to and the angelic hierarchy of authority or the demonic the hierarchy of the, and the demonic powers. So here's our prophetic panorama. The rapture occurs 
And that is the second stage. That is the second company. Christ has already been resurrected. At the rapture, we receive our resurrection bodies. Then you have the tribulation period. Halfway through the tribulation, there will be the resurrection of the two saints. Uh, during the time of the tribulation, we're in heaven being evaluated at the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, conclude with the marriage of the Lamb. Jesus Christ then returns at the second coming. This is when tribulation saints and Old Testament saints receive their resurrection bodies. There will be a judgment where uh, tribulation unbelievers, those who survive, are sent to Hades. And then Jesus establishes the 1,000-year rule and reign on the earth where he will be physically and bodily present at the uh, ruling from Jerusalem. Then we have our final judgment at the end of the millennium. At the end of the millennium, Satan is released for a short time, leads a revolt against God. He is destroyed by God with a fire and brimstone from heaven, he and the, the humans who align themselves with him. And then the earth is destroyed. The present heavens and the earth are destroyed. God creates a new heavens and a new earth. And all of this pulls together the end of human history. So the scripture says, then comes the end, and the end is defined by these two clauses, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, and when he puts an end to all when he puts an end to all uh, rule and authority and uh, power at both both of these winds are the Greek word hatan, which indicate a temporal particle. So the two clauses there, verse 24, define the end. And then in verse 25, we're told, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And this is where we get into the confusion of who are the he's and the his's and the him's. Now, to answer this, we have to go to verse 28. Verse 28 gives us the key to being able to identify who the he's and the hymns are earlier in the passage. Look at verse 28. Now, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Now, look at that last phrase. The one who subjected all things to him. Who is the one who subjected all things to him? That must be God the Father. So when we have the verb subjected, who does the subjecting? Ultimately, it is God the Father. And all things are subjected to him. That is Jesus Christ. So if we look at the phrase, who subjected all things, and we understand that that is a reference to God the Father, then when we look at verse 27, where it says, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet, the first he must refer to God the Father. He's the one who's ultimately putting all things into subjection. And the person under whose feet, something being put under someone's feet is a military term for conquest, uh, a military idiom for conquest in the ancient world. So the he who puts all things in subjection must be the Father, and the, the, the feet belong to Jesus Christ. So then we're clear that in verse 27, the first he refers to the Father, and the his refers to the Son. For he, God the Father, has put all things in subjection under the feet of the Son. But when he, that is uh, God the Father, in Psalm 8, 6, from which this is a quote, says, All things are put in subjection. It is evident that he, the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. So the Father is not made subject to the Son. Now, this is an important passage. We just finished a lengthy study in second hour on the person of Christ. And as part of that study, we looked at the history of Christology and the identification of Christ with the Father, or, or what is the relationship of Christ to the Father. And I said in the early church there were two questions. And the first question is, 
What was Jesus before he came? And the second question they addressed was, what was Jesus when he came? And if you remember, I pointed out that one of the attempts to explain the relationship of the pre-incarnate Christ to the Father was called subordinationism. And the most extreme form of that was Arianism, the idea that, that sometime in eternity past, the Father created the Son. And so that view was called subordinationism. And this was a passage they went to. That Verses 27 and 28 show that the Son is subordinate to the Father. Yes, He is subordinate to the Father in His role, but not in His essence. In His essence, He is fully God. Colossians 2, 8, For in Him dwells the, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is equal to God in His person, but he is subordinate to God in terms of the role he plays in human history, in bringing human history to a culmination and bringing the angelic conflict to a culmination. So backing up through 1 Corinthians 15 now, we get back to verse 25. For he that is the Son must reign. It is the Son who reigns on the earth. It's not the Father. It is the Son who reigns on the earth until he has put all enemies under his feet. Now, this is a reference to Psalm 8.6, and perhaps it's an allusion to Psalm 110.1. But 110, Psalm 110.1 is talking about uh, the Son will sit at the Father's right hand until he has made his enemies his footstool. Now, that refers to, this is where you get into intricacies of Scripture. And it's interesting how a lot of this ties together for us. Last year, we did a detailed study on the ascension and session of Christ. As such, we studied Psalm 110.1. And this has to do with the fact that Jesus Christ is now in session. This is from the Latin word meaning to sit. And he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is not ruling from the right hand of God the Father. He is seated, and he will be seated until the enemies are made his footstool. This takes place during the church age and the seven-year tribulation. But the session ends when Christ... Actually, the session begins to end at the rapture. It completes its ending at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then we have the rule of Christ on the earth. Now notice, Christ isn't reigning in Psalm 110.1 when he is seated. He doesn't begin to reign until he takes the Davidic throne at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Now let's go back and look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 15.25. For he the Son must reign until the Father has put all his enemies under his feet. So there is, a rain, there is a session period when God the Father is uh, making Christ's enemies his footstool, and that includes the church age period and, its, and then the wrapping up during the seven-year tribulation. Then there is a final stage which takes place during the, during the millennial kingdom where the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And the last enemy is abolished when the last believer, and this applies only to believers of any dispensation, that this occurs when the last dead believer is raised from the dead. At that point, physical death and its consequences are abolished. So the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Verse 26 occurs when the last believer who dies physically is raised from the dead. And at the end of the millennial kingdom, this is when all principalities and powers and authorities and rulers are ultimately defeated and Satan is permanently and finally sentenced to the lake of fire. So we can... Paul concludes a section in verse 27, For he, God, has put all things in subjection under his... That is, uh, uh, the Father has put all things under the feet of the Son. 
But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. The Father is not under the authority of the Son. Everything else is finally put under the authority of God. This, as I pointed out last time, brings the angelic conflict to a conclusion because the angelic conflict began when Satan rebelled against the authority of God. And every time we rebel against the authority of God, every time we question God's goodness, every time we question God's plan, every time we question God's fairness, we're just playing along with, with Satan's plan. And until we recognize that the, cre- that the issue in the angelic conflict is unqualified obedience to God and to demonstrate that, that the creature cannot live independently of the Creator. We see that in Job. You, you do a study of Job. Job is written to show why there is suffering and how the believer is to handle suffering in life. Not once does God ever answer Job's question about why things went the way they went. It's not up to Job to understand, and we may never understand why we go through some of the suffering, some of the heartache, some of the difficulties that we go through in life. But part of it is to be a witness, to be a witness in the angelic conflict and to demonstrate that the uh, creature can only find stability and happiness, no matter what the circumstances are, by being in complete obedience to the Father. And so finally, this happens at the end of the millennial kingdom. All things are put in subjection, that is, in subordination to the authority of the Father, uh, except for the Father. He is not under the Son. The Son is under the Father. Verse 28, this takes place when all things are subjected to Him, uh, that is, the Son. When all things are subjected to Him, the Son, then the Son Himself will be all will be subjected to the One that is God the Father, who subjected all things to Him. So God the Father works in this to bring everything into subjection to the Son. Then the Son gives everything to the Father, and then Paul concludes so that God may be that all things with reference to all creatures, and that would be a expanded understanding of the two alls at the end of verse 28, so that God may be, uh, uh, every, uh, may be uh, all things to, with reference to every, every creature. And that restores everything to the proper position of the creator recognizing the authority, I mean the, the, the creature recognizing the authority of the creator. Now this brings us to our next passage, which I don't have time to get into this morning. But there's a real problem in understanding verses 29 to 34. In fact, one commentary I looked at on verse 29, which has to do with this phrase, baptism for the dead, stated that there were over 200 different interpretations for the phrase, baptism for the dead. Now, if you ever have to deal with a Mormon missionary, this is going to be a passage that they go to. This is why the Mormons are so big on genealogy, is because they they think that you can, if you identify all your dead relatives, you can be baptized vicariously for those relatives. Now, there's an English word you may not be familiar with, vicarious. It means as a substitute. And this is the word we use in reference to Jesus Christ's death on the cross. He, it is a vicarious atonement. He, it is a, a substitutionary atonement. Can you be baptized for a relative who has died physically and is in the grave? Well, the verse reads, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, I have been studying this. I've read other commentaries that uh, say that there are only 30 or 40 different interpretations for this passage. And as I saw this coming when I was down at D.C. a couple of weeks ago for Dan's graduation, uh, Dan picked me up at the airport and there was a uh, picnic at the seminary. So he, he took me over there so that I could... Uh, 
renew my acquaintance with a couple of his professors, one of whom I went to seminary with, uh, and his Greek professor, Dr. Edgar. Dr. Edgar teaches the, uh, in, in the New Testament Greek, teaches the First Corinthians course. So while I was sitting with these learned academicians, I said, okay, what does 1 Corinthians 15:29 say? Dr. Edgar looked at me and he said, I've been teaching that passage for over 40 years. I'm not satisfied with any of the explanations. I still don't know what it means. <laughs> so it is, um, it is not one that is easy to understand, but I think that I have, I've heard there's two or three possible, it's clear what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you get baptized so that somebody who's already died can get saved. If that's true, then it would violate everything else in the Scripture. So it can't mean that. So the question is, what does it mean? And we will study that. And then there's another problem with the second part of the passage uh, in verses 32 through 34. So we have two, uh, two difficult uh, verses to deal with next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged by its truth, to recognize that uh, the inevitable consequence of our Lord's resurrection is our resurrection. This is our hope. This is our confident expectation that we will be raised from the dead and we will spend eternity with you. And this is a time now when we prepare for that future time. The decisions we make today will determine who and what we are in eternity. Father, we pray especially that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal destiny, unsure or uncertain about, about their salvation, that they would take this time to be sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter of religious observance. It's not a matter of religious ritual. It is simply a matter of believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your salvation. He paid the penalty for your sins so that uh, Christ alone is, and his death alone is all that is necessary for your salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us and encourage us with the things that we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.